Greetings and welcome to the program. We'll continue getting this episode going through our series through the book of Revelation. And today we're going to look at uh, the, the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And so uh, we'll just jump right in and get going here. This is Revelation 3, starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I'll pause right there. Again, we have a another description of Jesus as he is the one authoring these letters, speaking to these churches as he is the head of the church. And uh, there's the description here. It says that he is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, that's sort of an interesting phrase, the key of David. What exactly does that mean? Well, we know that Jesus is, you know, the, the son of David. You know, he's David's offspring that is the rightful heir to the messianic throne. And uh, it's interesting, there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 22 where it's talking about some of the unfaithful stewards over Jerusalem who uh, were wicked, wicked stewards over Jerusalem. And in this passage in Isaiah 22, he's talking about how he's going to throw them out and replace them with faithful stewards. And Isaiah 22, 22 has the same exact phrase. It says, And I will place on his shoulder the key, talking about the faithful rulers he's going to put in the place of the unfaithful uh, stewards. He says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And so here that is used to describe Jesus, and he, of course, is the ultimate faithful steward, and since he's the king, not just the steward, and um, he has these keys to open and shut, and which no one else can do. And he rules over the house of David, and indeed the world. Now, um, that theme here is going to be important as we walk through this and some of the issues going on in Philadelphia. The idea of Jesus having the key of David um, over the house of David. Um, you'll see what I mean as we go. Continues, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Okay, so there's an important picture going. Because um, he's just said in verse 7, Jesus won the key of David. He opens and no one will shut. He shuts and no one opens. And so here he says, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So here we have a good contrast to the last episode where we saw the church of Sardis. They were a vibrant church in terms of activity. They, they looked busy and fruitful on the outside, but Jesus said, yeah, but you're actually dead, okay? You've become worldly, and you've soiled your garments in unholy living. And uh, this church here in Philadelphia is small. They're not influential. They're, 
They're not, uh, they don't have an easy going in the world. And yet, they have kept his word and they have not denied the, the name of Jesus. Continues in verse 9 Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And I'll pause there. Now, this is very interesting. This is, of course, talking about the apostate Jews of the first century who denied Christ, crucified him, handed him over to be killed, rejected his word. They were called by Jesus the synagogue of Satan. Okay, And it's interesting, if you're listening to this and you've been going to my church, I've been preaching through the, the Gospel of John, and this has been a recurring theme throughout John, Jesus' confrontation with the Jews. It's very, very confrontational. And we just got done with chapter 8, in which Jesus talks about how you know the Jews claimed to be sons of Abraham. And therefore, you know, the rightful heirs to the kingdom of God and the promises and all these things. Yet Jesus comes along and he says, um, yeah, Abraham's not really your father, but um, your father is the devil and you're just like him. And the devil is the father of lies, a murderer from the beginning, and that's why you want to kill me. And so uh, that obviously made them very upset. But the whole point Jesus was making was that if they were, if they were truly sons of Abraham... If they were true Jews, then they would believe what Abraham believed. And Jesus says in John 8 that Abraham rejoiced to see his day and was glad. In other words, Abraham was looking forward to Christ, the promised offspring of whom God said, and you all the nations shall be blessed. And it says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham is the father of our faith. He's the father of the Christian faith. And if you are a true Jew of Abraham then you have the faith of Abraham because that's what it means to be a son of Abraham. It's not about ethnicity, flesh, and blood. It's about faith. And Jesus told the Jews, you don't have this faith. You're of the father, you're a devil. You hate me and you want to kill me and you love lies. And therefore, there's synagogue of Satan. It's the same thing going on because it says um, there are Jews who are not. They say they are Jews, but they're not. Those are the same type of people Jesus addressed in John 8. People who were saying they were Jews, saying they were sons of Abraham, but truly not. Not because their ethnicity wasn't, you know, a Jewish ethnicity, but because they did not have the faith of the Old Testament patriarchs. They did not have the faith in the promises that the Old Testament promised about the Messiah. And so apparently what's going on in Philadelphia is there, there are a, there's a Jewish population that is... Um, causing some kind of persecution, some kind of, uh, some kind of persecution to this faithful little church in Philadelphia. And so Jesus is promising them that he's going to make them come and bow down before their feet, and they'll learn that Jesus loves them, okay, that Jesus loves them. What a great promise to be told, that Jesus is going to prove to your enemies that he loves you. It's an amazing thing. We'll continue reading verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Pause there again. Very important verse. Jesus says that 
because they have kept his word and they've patiently endured the things they're enduring, the persecution they're enduring, Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who will dwell on the earth. Now, there are futuristic readings of Revelation that will take this verse and, and uh, you know, dispensationalists who believe in like a pre-tribulation rapture will use this verse as some sort of proof text for a pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, rapture. Um, and nor, in order to do that, they have to entirely take it out of the context and interpret the words contrary to what the words are saying. Let's look closely at what Jesus says, and we'll see he's not talking about some kind of pre-tribulation rapture. I keep saying rapture. Um, first of all, remember the context. He's writing to a specific historical church in a specific location about specific issues and problems they are going through. And he's giving them specific words and promises. Of course, as I've labored to say over and over again, there are obviously still applications we can draw from these things, but we cannot um, say that the specifics are prophesying us when the specifics have a specific audience and time. So, so that first grounds us and would keep us from placing this somewhere in the future, unless the text would tell us that. But also, Jesus says to this church, I will keep you from the hour of trial. I will keep you. Now that does not say, I will take you away, or I will take you out of the trial, or I will rapture you away, or take you up. He's simply saying, I will keep you from the hour of trial, meaning I will persevere you. I will hold you fast. I will keep you faithful. You know, that's, that's, I will hold you. That is what's being said here, not take you away. Um, and then notice as well, what is it that he's going to keep them from? Um, the, an hour of trial. Okay, that's not talking about, uh, you know, some future event. An hour of trial that is about to come on the whole world in that day to try those who dwell on the land. Now, what good would it be if this were 2,000 years and counting into the future? Why would, why would that promise be given to this first century church in Philadelphia? Um, it just wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. They, they are about to go through. Their world in that first century is about to go through a great hour of trial. And Jesus is saying, I'll keep you. I will keep you during this time. That's all that's being said. Okay. Then verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So again, this is not talking about the second coming. This is simply the uh, coming in judgment that Jesus does, not a physical return, but his coming to judge, his, co his coming to uh, lay waste to Jerusalem and the temple when the apostate Jews do away with the old order of things, uh, formally, covenantally, and then formally enter into the Christian era. Okay, there was sort of this, you know, when Jesus ascended, you know, or really we could say the crucifixion, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, that begins, you know, the Christian era, where people are now hearing the, you know, hearing the gospel, being saved because of the work of Christ, 
But when Jesus, you know, this was in the early 30s AD when this happened, Jesus then ascends into heaven. And there's still old Judaism going on. There's still the temple standing. There's still temple sacrifices being made. And that goes on for almost 40 years until the year 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. This, you know, they're done. No more sacrifices are made in the temple. That generation who killed Christ are judged. Okay? But for the from about thirty or so to four to seventy, this it's it's an overlap sort of period, where there's still kind of the old order of things going on, while the power of God, power of the gospel is is going out into the world, and so. Uh, when he's coming, it's a reference to when he came in seventy A.D. to put away with that old order of things to judge that generation of wicked people who. Uh, you know, the temple had become a synagogue of Satan. Those who crucified Christ and they cried out, let his blood be upon us and our children. And Jesus came to judge that and and, and truly make that uh, come true. So that's what he's, that's the coming there that he's referring to because he's telling this. He's saying, I'm coming soon to this first century church here. Okay. He's coming soon to them. Um, Again, like I mentioned a moment ago, if it's 2,000 years and counting, it wasn't really soon then to the first century Christians. Why say it to them if it's not soon to them? The fact is it was soon to them, okay? You see? So uh, when Jesus said he was coming soon, he meant it, and he did. And of course, that is not talking about the second coming. Um, hold fast what you have so that no one may seek your crown. Verse 12, the one who conquers, again, there's that theme of conquering. That's what it's all about. Despite the great tribulation and tribulation of that day, it is despite the Jews raging and persecuting the Christians as they did in the first century, despite the Romans doing the same, the Christians conquer. The Christians conquer. So he says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and the, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I just want to note a thing or two here in these final few verses. He's going to write the, his name, uh, the the name of them on his people. You know, that's the identity marker. We are we are Christ. We are God's. And then he says he's going to write the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven as in my own new name. So there's this new city, Jerusalem, uh, not the old Jerusalem. See what's going on here, like I was mention, mentioning a moment ago, that you yeah, had the overlap period where old Judaism was being practiced, old covenant regulations were being kept, as well as uh, the gospel going forth from 30 to 70. There's an overlap period. And Jerusalem, the old physical city Jerusalem, where the temple temple was located, as Jesus said, had become a synagogue of Satan. It was a Christless, idolatrous religion, first century apostate Judaism. It had become a synagogue of Satan. That's the old Jerusalem. 
And Jesus says to these Christians who are being persecuted by the Jews, be faithful. I see your faithfulness. I will make them know that I love you. And out with the old Jerusalem, in with the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is not a physical city. It is the people of God. It is the people. It is, it is where God dwells with his people, and he now dwells in us. And it's, it's the people of God. So um, that is what's going on here. In one sense, uh, one, of the, one of the themes of Revelation is that you are replacing, it's a, it's a tale of two cities, okay? It's a tale of two cities, the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. And what is being promised here is, and we're going to see this theme come up later in Revelation as well, a tale of two cities, the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. One has become an apostate synagogue of Satan. The other is the beautiful bride adorned for her husband. And the old Jerusalem, the synagogue of Satan, is destroyed. Not one stone is left upon another. It's put away. It's put out. And the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. Symbolic, not a literal city. Symbolic of the people of God. God's dwelling with his people on the earth. Not limited to a city, a geographical location, or a building. And that's what's going on. It's a great, beautiful gospel promise. In that um, our names... His name is written upon us. And so there we have those beautiful themes here. And I think that's uh, all I'm going to say here on Philadelphia. And I hope this was helpful to you. Again, as you're going through these episodes in Revelation, if you're listening along and you have questions or you want clarifications or there's things that maybe I didn't address to the fullest extent that you like, um send me those questions and I will bring them up and answer them in these episodes. I think that'd be a very helpful thing. If you're listening and you have questions, email them to me, text them to me, whatever. I will bring them up and address them in the next episode. So, uh, so I want this to be a helpful, a helpful thing. Cause obviously what I'm doing is not exhaustive. There are just a innumerable amount of questions people could be having going through uh, a book such as Revelation. So send me those if you have them. I'd love to address them. And uh, that being said, I will talk to you guys in the next episode.